Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone to Garden of Doom, and this week we're welcoming in one of our favorite past guests. This is Luke Michael Ironside. He previously did the show entitled The Theosophical Underpinnings of Lucifer, which was a fascinating show, and I think that everybody should check that out. Um, and I'm so happy that you've agreed to come back into the show. And we're going to talk about Lilith today. So welcome in, Luke. Uh, thank you, Jeff. It's wonderful to be back. And I'm excited for our conversation today. As am I. And, you know, first of all, if you want to, you know, introduce yourself and give a little bit of background to the folks that didn't have the benefit of hearing from you last time, I'll, I'll let you do that. Because nobody can talk about you better than you. All right. Well, yes. Well, I'm involved in a few different things, uh, among them the Theosophical Society. I've been a member of the Theosophical Society since 2016, but I've been interested in theosophy and more broadly the occult and the esoteric for, well, for a longer period since my early teens. I dabbled in this and that. I explored Wicca. I explored... Um, various forms of hermeticism and um, occultism. And finally, I sort of found my spiritual home in theosophy. Um, outside, but also connected to my theosophical interests, I'm also a cleric in the old Catholic apostolic church, um, which is because really there's a distinction there in that theosophy is not a religion. It's it's the sort of general universal principles that underlie the all the world's religions, Christianity included, but not exclusive to Christianity, um, where 
as I have found it helpful also to have a more, I, I suppose, a religious practice alongside that more general universal approach, which I find in theosophy. So that's my involvement with the old Catholic apostolic church, a break off from the, you could say, from the Roman Catholic church, but also with some theosophical ancestry. Would, would it be safe to say that the old Catholic church would be what people sometimes call a Gnostic church? It's not Gnostic, no, um, although some members of the church may have had some Gnostic background or may have brought some Gnostic elements into the church, but it, it's not Gnostic, no. I think we can certainly say there's a distinction between the Gnostic church and the old Catholic church. It is perhaps more esoteric than certain of the mainstream denominations or we could say that es esotericism is accepted but not expected in that members of the clergy members of the laity can if they like explore the more esoteric aspects of christianity but there's no obligation to do so fair enough okay excellent what you know luke always books himself for no uh, future shows without even realizing he's doing it so one day we'll do a show exploring what is the difference between old catholic and gnosticism and what is hermeticism and and the occult and we'll probably we we may touch on all of these things here today because i i really don't know so the top subject today is lilith who uh, you know when I was growing up, Lilith was sort of an unusual name. Lilith was Fraser Crane's ex-wife on Cheers. Lilith was the name of an all-female uh, musical artist tour that was uh, going, it was, was like a concert festival. Maybe it still exists. I don't know. I don't really follow music these days. Um, <laughs> I was listening to uh, a song, and uh, I don't even remember the name of the song, but it was from 1995, and I'm like, yeah, this is a new song. And then I realized... No, it's 27 years old. It's literally half my lifetime. Um, so is that one? Uh, so called, I know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't carry a tune. But anyway, that was one of those revelations where you're like, yeah, that's not a new song. Um, and Warren G and, uh, and uh, Nate Dogg uh, Regulate uh, was, is from 94. Uh, so that too is not a new song. That I, that was the next song on. So it was a disturbing day for me yesterday. Uh, but that's all we're here to talk about. So Lilith, right. So, so Lilith was Adam's first wife. And the thing about that is, you know, I've read Genesis a bunch of times. That's one of the reasons that this show exists. And Lilith is not mentioned there. We, we go from Adam to Eve, no Lilith. But the strange thing about Lilith is that in other topics that are related to Genesis and the Bible, Oftentimes there's disagreement, what's canon, what's not canon. Wars have been fought over these things. And then there's some denominations and sects of, of all the religions that think that the Dead Sea Scrolls are absolutely canon. Others don't think it's canon. Some think it's fiction. Some don't believe it's canon, but use it to support their notions. But I have not found anyone yet that disputes that Adam had a first wife named Lilith. Uh, so... That's my understanding of Lilith. I've, of course, heard the story of Mother of Monsters, this, you know, uh, you know, first vampire, you know, the Gorgon, you know, whatever it is. But Luke, tell us, first of all, who's Lilith and how is it that, that you know, what what's her story and how is it that somehow nobody disputes that, that 
she exists even though she does not appear in the Bible. Right. So to begin in answering that question, we need to go back to the can- canonical and non-canonical aspects of the Bible, which is a, a really complex but fascinating um, fascinating problem in sort of biblical interpretation. And we did a lot of this in our last talk, looking at the etymology of Lucifer and the way that Lucifer may have been a misinterpretation of a Babylonian king. I and mean, we went into all this fascinating etymology in our, our last topic. And this is similar in some ways in that we need to sort of pick apart what's going on, pick apart how this interpretation has come to be. So first of all, as, as a cleric myself, I think that there is a reason for certain books being canon- canonical and others not being. And really it comes down to being careful. It's, it's a matter of the fact that, you know, certain books are more reliable or have more sources or have more cross-references than others. And so one aspect of that in terms of what constitutes the Bible today, and a few and of course it varies across different traditions, different denominations, but it comes down to, okay, what is most likely to be the most reliable set of books which constitute the Bible. And so these are books that are referenced between each other or which seem to agree one with another. So if we were to compare the four Gospels, we find generally they're in agreement. There might be one or two little disagreements, but the general picture is in agreement with each other. And so although it doesn't make for a perfect flow, if one was to read you know, most of the mainstream traditions of the Bible, whether we're looking at the, the New James Version or another, from front to cover, more or less you're going to get a, a story which, which flows, which makes sense, which references um, itself at various points. It, it generally makes sense as a story, as a narrative. Then we also get these many, many non-canonical or extra canonical books of the Bible as well, of which there are numerous. And these have various various levels of reliability. Some of them have been proven to be absolutely, you know, forgeries, fakes that have just been, you know, written at some much later point. Um, so, so we get a bunch of those. Others of them are much more controversial. There's various um, arguments as to their origins, how reliable, how genuine there are. And there's others which were simply rejected because their views were too controversial according to the orthodoxy of the day. And it's that latter category which I think has perhaps been rejected for the poorest of reasons in that it's been rejected because the people did not like the ideas presented in books, not because the ideas were in any kind of contradiction to the other books that found their way into the the mainstream canons of today. And of course, a lot of this happened in some of the early counts, like the Council of Nicaea and so on. We find sort of the selection of the acceptable books of the Bible and the rejection of others. So uh, some of this was political as well. Some of it was um, simply for the sake of simplicity. Um, so, there's, so there's a lot of complex reasons. Now, that's not to say that these extra canonical books of the Bible are not useful. 
So just because they've perhaps been rejected as a part of the canon of the church doesn't mean they don't add some kind of value to our you know, our understanding, our exegesis of the of the books of the Bible. So I think that's where Lilith comes in, in that the story of Lilith is found in some of these extra canonical books, which while not a part of the Bible, uh, she is referenced enough in many of these, in many other extra Judaic texts and other texts, that she cannot be ignored. Then also, when we, it, it's sort of like a little detective work here, because when we go back to who Lilith is, we need to look at Genesis 1 verses 27 where we find the statement, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created he them. Now, interestingly, in this verse, we find a reference to male and female. Now, this is, this is very early on in Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 27. This is before Eve. You know? right. So then what we find later is what sort of comes across as a bit of a contradiction. In Genesis 2, verse 7, we have this account of, of Yahweh, of God creating man alone, man out of the dust, Adam out of dust. And then a bit later on in Genesis 2, verses 20 to 23, we have the, the famous story of the creation of Eve from Adam's rib. So there seems to be a bit of a contradiction there in that there's two creation accounts for man or man and woman and how man and woman came about. And so when we cross-reference this with some of the other rejected extra-canonical works, we find this figure of Lilith as perhaps being the first figure in the first uh, wife of Adam. So that's like the basic, the basic background to who is Lilith, how does she fit into this Genesis narrative. I have a couple of questions for you. One, I know this is man and woman, but is there anybody out there, are there any movements who have taken what you've just described in whole, and that is their basis for the belief that maybe God created humans in God's image, but that's that's proof that God is actually a woman, because Lilith might have been the first creation, so the image was actually of Lilith, and, and Lilith more represents God. Is there is there anything like that out there? I would certainly assume so, in that I can't I can't think of a particular group, but I, I would imagine in feminist circles that there is certainly like this interpretation of God as a woman, which I think is just a sort of extreme reaction to God as a man and the patriarchy. And, you know, it, it might not be, it might be a little bit tongue in cheek, or it might be just the sort of extreme reaction. And we find this everywhere. Like we find in the cult culture of the 1960s, the church of Satan emerging as the extreme reaction to the fundamental, the Bible belt and the fundamentalism in, um, in America. And I, I think when these things happen, it's sort of like the swing of a pendulum and it's, it's a deliberate extremism of the opposite. And I think this extremism it. of the opposite is an attempt at balance, but it's also slightly satirical and it never 
takes hold. It, it's never sort of a, a serious, um, it, it always, the pendulum always comes back to the middle and then you end up with a slightly more sort of middle ground centrist view of, of these sorts of situations. So I, I, I think it's a reaction and yes, there is the sort of movement feminist idea of God is a woman, but I think what that's resulted in, even within Christianity and especially within Christianity is the idea of a God without a gender, yeah. but a God, which is referred to as he, for the sake of simplicity or perhaps a he in the sense that God takes on many of the characteristics traditionally associated with men, but perhaps not associated with men in the modern era, in that God is a leader, God is a peace, uh, like a, a judge, if you like, God is a, um, a politician of sorts. And, and these are all kinds of a king. These are all words which traditionally are associated with men, but nowadays we wouldn't say this. Nowadays we wouldn't say only men can be judges, only men can be leaders, only men can be, you know, so nowadays this has been degendered and we, we get great women leaders, we get great women judges. And so now all these traditional associates with God that made God a he, we actually find a, a sort of non-gender specific. And so it's quite interesting the connection between God and gender and the debate um, between the two. But then what, what is certain is that Jesus was a man and Jesus was the, if you like, the the, the personification or the manifestation of God on earth. Um, but I, I think, yes, that this dichotomy of male and female and, and Jesus and Mary and even Adam and Eve and Adam and, and Lilith and, and the way this dichotomy exists throughout biblical literature is really fascinating, certainly. Yeah, definitely. I, I would think that it would be very attractive, especially to a lot of um, religions and cultures, at least that are, that are, you know, about the sacred feminine. And I don't really mean the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code. I mean, I, I mean a lot of the animistic uh, religions, a lot of, you know, Mother Earth, Gaia, that that kind of thing, that it'd be a way to reconcile those, though obviously it would be at complete odds with some others. But now if I started this religion, obviously it's a fraud because, you know, I'd be doing it just to try to do some sort of movement. But I, I'm just surprised that there isn't a larger movement, but there isn't, or if there is, we don't know about it. Um, the other, well, now I've got one trivial question that just came up. Now I say Lilith, and I know that sometimes you've been saying Lilith too, probably just to fit in with me, but you say Lilith, which is the proper pronunciation, or is it just a, a function of our accents? I'd say it's just an accent aspect. I've heard Lilith, I've heard Lilith. Okay. I've always said Lilith, but I've, I've heard both. Maybe that's just how I heard it first and it's what stuck. Um, so yeah, it, it might be an American British thing as well. Um, I forget, I, I get confused between American and British pronunciation. I was raised in New Zealand where we've got this weird mix of both. And I, I'm so international in my in my events, in my reach, in my friends, that um, I pick up pronunciations from both. So yeah, it, it might be um, a regional accent. That's fine. Um, but I've heard both. Yeah. Okay. Where, where are you now? Uh, currently, I'm in Armenia. So I've I've moved uh, from where we last had our talk before. Of, co I was of course, Brazil, you have. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, now I'm in Armenia, which is itself uh, actually the oldest Christian country in the world, and, and remains a um, a very Christian country. 
Um, interestingly, with its own sort of canon, its own church, which you find only, you know, here in, in Armenia and among the, um, uh, among our Armenian communities in other countries. So yeah, they've got their own unique church here in Armenia, which is also really interesting considering we're comparing different canons today. All right. Two questions that have nothing to do with Lilith, just on Armenia. Um, one, when we're recording this, folks, it's it's April 24th. Um, and I only say that because I, I rarely know when I'm going to drop shows, but because Luke is associated with the NACON conference, it may be many months until I drop it when, it when it's closer to the conference. And in fact, you may hear another show with Luke before this one that's recorded afterwards. In any event, so is it Easter Sunday there in Armenia now? Are they on the Julianic or the Gregorian calendar versus the Ju I don't know which one is which, but Gregorian sounds more Eastern than Julianic, which sounds more like you know, Julius Caesar. So I may have those backwards then. Uh, yes, yes. Um, you'll actually, like, Ar Armenia does follow the same calendar as, you know, the majority, the, the Western churches. So it's not. That. It was Easter last week. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so it was Easter last week um here and, and easter is a very celebrated event um okay. here in armenia as are all of the christian traditions i i think in terms of the christian holidays uh they are much the same as the church of england and the catholic church generally speaking um but of course there are a few differences as well but yes easter was uh, last sunday yeah well easter is a big one i know it's being celebrated with by a lot of the eastern orthodox churches today all right the other question a little bit maybe a little bit deeper but my understanding that the name armenia comes from armin who was one of the angels or some sort of angel that apparently i guess went to sleep or ha houses him or herself in Mount Armin, which is uh, what Armenia is named after. Is any of that correct? Um, I've, I've heard various different uh, origins for the name Armenia, actually. And you'll, you'll find that the prefix Arm, A-R-M, is very common here in Armenia. And, and one translation of A-R-M is noble. And the I'm actually studying ancient, ancient Armenian history at a college uh, here in Armenia, and the etymology provided by the college was actually that arm refers to noble, men refers like it sounds to men, as in the Indo-European word for men, therefore no, noble men, noble people. Apparently, um, the name Armenia is related etymologically to the name of Iran, where we get ar, which is similar to arm, right. and an, similar to men, the same meaning of noble people. And of course, Armenia and Iran are, are neighbors, neighboring nations, and they share a lot of historical land, much of um, Armenia used to actually be, you know, sort of Iran, six yeah. or seven times larger than it is now, um, including some of the territory in the modern day state of Iran. So that's, that's what I've learned. Um, actually, the the connection, but I, I, I have heard various interpretations of the um, origins of the name. And I think that it, it's the same for many countries which go back to that kind of antiquity. There may be more than one possible etymological interpretation. There is a Mount Armin, though, in Armenia? Uh, yes, uh, I, I believe there is a, a Mount 
Armin. There's there's quite a few mountains here actually. Um, the most famous of them being Mounts. Um, Ararat, which right. is the biblical mountain of Noah, Noah's Ark, and the Dove, and so on. Yeah, so that's the most famous one, which is actually now in the territory of Turkey, um, but historically in Greater Armenia. Um, also, there's Mount Aragats. I mean, there's so many mountains here that um, which have been called so many names over history, but I, I do believe I've heard of a Mount Armin. I can't quite place where or when I've heard of it, but I, I do believe I've heard, heard reference. So what I heard might have been like a glorified myth uh, to suit a narrative. Look into whether or not Armin was an archangel, because if I re remember correctly what I heard, which may or may not be correct, we already have established that, that premise. Uh, if Armin was one of the 200 fallen watchers, um, which would make it ironic if a country is named after one of the fallen watchers and actually becomes the first official Christian state. I think the whole thing about Armenia and, and the area could be its own show one day, which again, you've now booked yourself for because you're, you're going to be an expert on it. Um, I'd be happy to. All right, folks, sorry about this. Actually, I'm not sorry about it. It's very interesting. But back to Lilith or Lilith. So um, where which non-canonical books that have, first of all, could you give us some examples of some non-canonical books that have been disregarded and, and, and but some that have been, let's just say generally accepted, not uni universally accepted, just so that folks have an idea, maybe they've heard of some, maybe they have. All right, um, well, the, the first one that sort of comes to mind is the book of Adam and Eve. This is a sixth century text, um, it was, uh, originally written in, or thought to have been penned in Arabic. Um, it's sort of connected to the, the Ethiopian tradition. Um, and the the antiquity of the book is disputed in that the earliest known edition dates to the 6th century, so obviously quite a bit later than some of the others, but it's quite possible. So, so B.C., so 6th century B.C., not... Well, actually, I'm, I'm referring to the 6th century AD, so a much later text. That okay, This is the earliest known version of it. Um, however, this doesn't mean that the story originates from the 6th century, because often the, there are earlier lost translations, earlier lost editions, and it's, it's quite possible. In fact, one of the theories is that this is simply a translation of a lost text. Um quite possibly. And so that's, that's one of the sort of texts which kind of expands on, yeah, you, you could say it really it expands on the story of Genesis. It, it gives extra detail to try and sort of fill in some of those gaps, right? And that, but we... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. Oh, well, I was just going to say we, we also find... Um, earlier, much earlier references to Lilith in Mesopotamian mythology. And of course, a lot of this Mesopotamian mythology had an influence on the Genesis myth. And we, we find prior references to some of these ideas of a great flood, prior ideas of a, you know, a garden, a special garden or a sacred garden. So, and a snake symbol of the snake, symbol of the tree of knowledge. We, we find many of these ideas actually in other mythologies, including in, included in Mesopotamian mythology, where we also have this spirit or deity called Lilu, um, 
or alu sometimes, um, and this is sometimes considered to be the earliest reference to Lilith. Okay, very interesting. Okay, so Lilith um, appeared. Oh, I, I remember the original second question I want to ask, which is now probably the fifth. Um, I have read a little bit about the occult, very little. Um, but one of the things I read is uh, that somehow the, the Masonic, I'll just say, use the word legend, is somehow is somewhat tied to the occult, whether purposefully or it's just been lumped in there. But that in the Masonic legend, and again, I'm not sure if this is accurate now, it's just so, something I read. So maybe one of the Armin Archangel things that, that, that I read that has basis in little. Um, but that their version is that Lilith, the Cain was Lilith and Adam's child, and that, uh, and that some, and that somehow, like all sorts of things, like all of the useful trades, came from that uh, that offspring and from the descendants of Cain. So the the builders, the architects, the math, everything that was useful came came from the descendants of Cain, and, and those are the Masons, and and that sort of their origin story and, and, and the, the knowledge that they have that, that no one else, you know, that is uh, so confrontational to the church, even though they consider themselves to be, I, I, I think, well, Christian, but not necessarily. I, I, I'm not sure. Is, is any of that resonating? Does any of that hold any water in? I, I don't mean in fact, just in the real world. Like what I'm saying is, is, is that a correct recitation? Well, uh, yeah, first of all, I'm, I'm not a, a Mason. I do have many friends who are Masons. Um, so I've, I've only had that sort of exposure to Masonry from the outside, you know, from, from what is sort of publicly um, accessible. However, there's certainly a connection between Tubal Cain, the descendant of Cain, um, and masonry in that uh, if you were to follow the biblical genealogy Tubal Cain was the first blacksmith okay right who did Cain uh, pop, uh, copulate with who, who, who was who was his procreation partner or partners um so Cain um yes he well I'd have to check my references there he yeah I, I believe it was his actually at that time it was his sister um but the name slips my mind but it, it was apparently his sister um who was his spouse and due to you know the, the way there were very limited uh choices according to traditional um traditional genealogy of the time of course there were very limited humans populating the earth at the time. So it was his sister who was named just slipped my mind. Um, but okay. this also fits into the whole idea of Cain and his curse and Cain, you know, the murderer, the, the sort of, you know, of course, of course this sort of fits into the whole theme of Cain not being so great of a guy that he had to, um, yeah, have offspring with his sister and his offspring, therefore being cursed and, and so on. So it fits into that whole um, mythology, hmm. if you like. My understanding is that all of the children named in the begetting and the begatting, they they were only the men, but all of them had pairs. They all had sisters and most of them had twins as well. So mm -hmm. this, this was actually very, this was not common. This was everything. It wasn't just common. It was your only choice. 
and that somebody told me, I can't remember, but I think it was, it was either a, a rabbi or a student, a, a graduate of yeshiva, um, that Cain was jealous of, of Abel because Cain didn't have a, tw- uh, he didn't have twin sisters. He had a twin sister singular, whereas Abel had twin sisters in plural. Uh, and, and that was sort of the root of the conflict. Uh, and then like everyone else got twin sisters and, and, you know, then I guess the, the genders evened out over the time of begetting and begatting. But I, I don't know where that comes from. I, I, I'm going to assume it's in one of the supplemental Jewish books. I, I don't know where that's the Talmud or the Midrash or I have it all wrong, but that's sort of my primitive understanding. But is there anything to Lilith being the mother of Cain or is that just, you know, is, is that just a side dish? That's not part of conventional theology. I'd say that's perhaps not conventional, not conventional theology, but it's also perhaps not unheard of in that these these genealogies you'll find countless uh, variations of these biblical genealogies depending on the traditions. But in, you know, you can go into the fringes of Judaic. Uh, interpretations, but then likewise you can go into the fringes of Christian and uh, Islamic interpretations, and you can even go outside of that into various esoteric or Masonic interpretations. And yeah, so certainly it's not unheard of, but I wouldn't say it's in the mainstream. Okay, it's not accepted but not rejected either. All right, let's go back to start at the start uh, and, you know, sort of give the traditional story of Lilith and hopefully without my interruptions this time. Right. Well, yes. Well, when it comes back to this original idea of Lilith being the original uh, wife of Adam, well, this, this also raises another question of whether Adam was the first man. And it it all sort of relates because there's a theory called the pre-Adamite theory. I'm not sure if you've, heard of this before no thank but you the, <laughs> <laughs> right well the, the pre-adamite theory it's, it's mostly uh a belief among old earth creationists so you sort of within christianity you get sort of three broad well we could say two 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 broad schools of thought sort of the young earth creationists and the older creationists so the young earth creationists the whole you know the world is 6,000 years old type thing. The old earth creationists, more or less, Darwin was right. You know, the age of the earth is correct, but God had a a hand in evolution, right? So one theory of old earth creationism, because the the, the reason why young earth creationists date the world to 6,000 years is that you can literally follow the genealogy of Adam to David and David to Jesus, Meaning that you can kind of, because they mention how long each person lived when they died. If you look, if you sort of trace the genealogy, you can work out how old the world is. That's sort of the the theory of Adam was the first person and he lived, you know, approximately 6,000 years ago. Then the world is 6,000 years old. So in sort of, in response to this, a movement emerged in sort of the 18th, 18th century, more or less, called the pre-Adamite movement. And pre-Adamites have the idea that humans existed before Adam. And this is not a mainstream 
uh, Christian belief, but it's it's broad enough that you know there's been a lot of literature, a lot of Christian and non-Christian literature mm-hmm. um, published regarding the issue. And so, first of all, that this sort of opens up the idea that actually before, even before Adam, Adam may have been the most significant of the, let's say, the early, early-ish sort of humans, but he may have not been the first of the humans. So that just sort of opens up a whole other area of inquiry. But regardless, this idea of, of Lilith as the first wife of Adam, whether she predated Adam, whether she, whether she was, you know, contemporary to Adam, whether she came after Adam. Um, these are, this is something which, you know, there's not enough literature to sort of decide upon, but she is sort of considered to be the, the, the possibly the first wife, um, created in that verse, Genesis one, uh, verses 27, the idea that male and female were created at the same time. Therefore, that Adam was created alongside Lilith, but instead of being sort of, you know, predating, um, instead of like a gap in which she is then created from the the ribs, such as Eve was. And a lot of this is related to the Kabbalah. Um, You've probably heard of the Zohar. Mm -hmm. Not enough, but uh, that'll be another show one day. But yeah, I... I, (laughs) I had a, a show on Kabbalah, and uh, people should check it out. It was with a Orthodox rabbi that came to us via mm-hmm. Israel, so that was pretty cool. Well, they, they probably could comment on this more, you know, uh, authoritatively than me. But yeah, the, this, the Zohar is basically just for the sake of the audience. It's a commentary, and it's a commentary on the esoteric aspects of the Torah, the, the first five books, the five books of, of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. So. Just as in theosophy, we have the idea that there's an exoteric and an esoteric interpretation to religion. This is also an idea in Kabbalah and in mystical Judaism, um, also in mystical Islam. The the idea that um, there's sort of the the face value sort of exoteric, like obvious aspects of religion that which gives the traditions, the rituals, the the common sense principles, love thy neighbor as thyself, um, have no God but me, these kind of like Ten Commandments, don't, 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 do not murder, don't steal, these sort of like common sense um, principles. But beneath all of that, there's also an esoteric aspect. And so what the Zohar is, is an esoteric text, which attempts to identify the sort of mystical aspects, the the mythical cosmogony, the psychology, the nature of God and the structure of, you know, the universe of souls, the relationship between the ego and and God, all of this is sort of um, mentioned in the exegesis of the Zohar. So it's the Zohar which makes many references to Lilith. And in this, um, yeah, so she, she is the first wife of Adam. And in fact, she did have children with Adam. Doesn't, it doesn't mention that it was Cain. It doesn't specifically say anything about Cain, but that's sort of the, 
less sort of mainstream interpretation. Perhaps Cain could have been her son, but yeah, it, without mentioning names, it does mention that she did have offspring with Adam. And in fact, in quite a sort of feminist approach, she left Adam um, rather than, you know, Adam leaving her, which is, which is quite, you know, radical, I suppose, for, you know, compared to the, the rest of the sort of more patriarchal approach of relationships in the Bible. It's quite interesting that she's sort of the, the more powerful one, perhaps, in the relationship. Um, but there's also some sort of dark aspect to her. Um, yeah, and, and also that she, she seduced Adam rather than Adam seducing her. So, again, this kind of idea of the power of women, maybe the dark the darker sort of element or the, the, more, the darker power or the darker, um, I don't know how to phrase it, sort of like the, the, the power of woman uninhabited by or unimpeded by men, I suppose. The succubus. Yeah, the succubus trope. Yeah, yeah the, the succubus type thing. Um, yeah, which I think could be interpreted in two ways. There's the more positive approach in that she was sort of, you know, this free, independent woman, you know, completely unconstrained by the traditions of her time, or what might be the more traditional Christian, like sort of fundamentalist approach. Oh, she was, you know, the evil woman who seduces men to go away from their, you know, holy path, that type of approach. So of course, you'll find both uh, sort of understandings of the myth. It's a little um, bit odd to think that somebody is accused of seducing the man when there's only two of them. I mean, what, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what choices did they have? I mean, so do, do we know anything about her children? You said they were not named. Are, are these perhaps those goat herders in the land of Nod that we hear of in Genesis? Or is it, is it, is it all just wild speculation? Are there any stories in any semi-accepted uh, canonical books about the children of Lilith uh, other than the mother of monsters? Or is, 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 is that what her kids were? Or is that what they... All right, let me, let me tell the audience sort of what my understanding of the or an amalgamation of what I think the traditional story of Lilith was, is, is that she was not as submissive to Adam as he wanted. Whether that's reasonable or unreasonable, they don't really go into details. I don't know. If she's the one that seduced him, that doesn't seem to be, like that should really be part of the problem, but what do I know? I'm not Adam. <laughs> but anyway, she was not submissive enough to him. He complained to God. God said, fine, off with off with her. Apparently, she grew wings and became sort of like a harpy of sorts, uh, or a bat, or a vampire, or a dragon, or whatever, and flew away. And then in one of the other stories I heard, God dispatched two angels to go chase her. They chased her for a while, but they could never gain on her. Um, and she, like, said to him, listen, I, I won't tell anyone if you don't, which is sort of strange for a uh, all-knowing deity um, and the angels who apparently in most religions aren't supposed to have free will said yeah you know I mean basically they sent the keystone cops of angels and they're like you know it's happening Costello okay fine but we you know the two stooges they're like okay fine we won't tell anyone and they gave up and she went off and then you know I guess started having you know you know everything from our minotaurs gorgons giant snakes dragons uh, you know, griffins, uh, hippo griffin, whatever, mermaids, whatever, 
Lilith was the mother of all these things. So that is that is my amalgamation of the Lilith myths that I have heard. And then the, the little deeper one was that, that Adam and Lilith actually gave birth to Cain. That's sort of a Cain later. So how much of that is sort of accepted, uh, I'm going to say doctrine for lack of a better word in my head, but, you know, where, where does that fit in an in, 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 in accepted interpretation? Or is there is there a better story that you can tell that's more traditionally accepted? Right. Well, I think we'll find that in, in mainstream Christianity, Lilith is basically ignored. She might be, you know, someone that people have heard about, but she's kind of ignored. So we, we find this definitely, this idea that you've mentioned, definitely in more esoteric, mystical aspects of Christianity, but also definitely as an accepted mainstream idea in rabbinic literature, in Judaic literature. So she's definitely more of an accepted figure in Judaism than in Christianity for, for whatever reason that might be. I think it might simply be, again, that, political aspect of choosing which books of the Bible are acceptable, which characters of the Bible are acceptable, which also had the role in simplifying certain figures in the Bible, like Lucifer or the morning star was simplified to Satan. Lilith was simplified to a demon, right? Mm -hmm. But really, you know, if you, if you, if you ask a rabbi about this, they'd say, no, it's, it's much more complex than that. So, Yes, so I, I think to, to sort of arrive at the root of this, we need to look at what the rabbinic literature, such as the Zora, says, where, yes, she is depicted as, generally depicted as the mother of Adam's sort of demonic offspring. Now, these are sort of the succubi and the incubi and the monsters and maybe the giants and this and that all these sort of terrible um semi-human or subhuman type um beings right and then this this is what where where life sort of fits into that um story so yeah she, she left adam being you know like as you said not subservient enough not sort of the perfect wife being too dominant, um, free angels. I, I heard the story of being free, free angels tried to force it to return. Now here the story gets a bit interesting because according to some of the stories, one of these angels was called Samael. And Samael would be, a, you know, a whole talk because Samael is a really controversial figure in Talmudic uh, literature. Um, not really found so much in the Christian tradition, but in many ways the the Talmudic um, counterpart of Satan. Yeah, that's in, what I heard, that Samael really is the original name for Satan, the, the, the leader of the, the bad angels, you know, the fallen angels. Yeah. And I've also heard Samael described as being the first vampire. And really, what's the difference between a demon and a vampire? Yes. Right, exactly. So, in some traditions, you even find uh, Samuel, and you mentioned this idea of Cain as the yeah, as, as the child of 
um, Lilith. And one one tradition says that rather than Ad, Cain being Adam's true son, that Cain was a son of, of Samael and perhaps uh, Lilith. So that's like one of the very variations not not a mainstream variation but one of the variations of of that whole story but in any case some people say rather than adam being the father of these demonic offspring that it was samael one of the angels who went after lilith um who is the father of these offspring and then samael himself being a bit of a you know dodgy figure in, in this whole <laughs> narrative with you know with Lilith created this so I, I think that sort of the way I see it is kind of twisting the narrative to try and keep Adam in the clear oh up uh, you know Adam he, he couldn't have been he couldn't have fathered Cain he couldn't have fathered these terrible offspring so I, I think that's sort of an attempt at preserving his reputation if you like um so how much weight that holds I don't know but as, as with all these stories, there's just going to be countless interpretations, which just makes it all the more fascinating. So in the end, you know, you, you can you can follow all the, you can you can connect all the points. You know, this is what I, I love about biblical literature. You can connect all the dots and arrive at completely different conclusions than someone else. Absolutely. And there's no way that you're going to connect all the dots and arrive at one sort of single answer to how everything pieces together. It's such a complex um, narrative written over thousands of years by so many different authors and, and with all these extra, uh, you know, extra canonical works that you've got to tie in as well and which ones you consider reliable or unreliable. In the end, there's going to be a myriad of interpretation. Yeah, which, which ones are fan fiction? That makes it all, all the more fascinating. Yeah, which which ones are fan fiction and which ones were uh, more scholarly yeah. and and is there even a difference sometimes? But yeah, that 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 I mean, there's a reason why this show is called the Garden of Doom and not the Garden of Eden. We are interested in in these well, all of it, including Garden of Eden. But it's sort of funny that Lilith gets this this bad rap as being sort of the evil of woman, and Adam is sort of in the clear, but. Now, listen, I'm a little rusty on my Genesis story, uh, of, of course, but didn't Adam also partake from the forbidden fruit uh, or was he tricked into it or was he sort of, he sort of did it with knowledge? Well, as is often the theme in biblical literature, we sort of find that the woman is the trickster, the idea that, yeah, even Eve then takes on the role of Lilith, I think. I think that's interesting in some ways because Lilith was sort of the the bad wife, if you like. She, you know, she wasn't. She, she definitely didn't have the sort of subservient sort of Christian attitude that we might find um, that we that we might find expected in the Bible. And so, fooled yeah, around she, with angels. Yes, and so she left, and of course, when when she left, she became all those terrible things that a terrible woman will be. She, you know, she was a seducer, she was a witch, she was a demon. Her offspring were demons. She's sort of just like that, you know, personification of evil and, and temptation. To, perhaps a personification of temptation would be appropriate. Can we go the back and find a, a Bible, uh, you know, Genesis Twitter? It was to find out what people were saying about her then, or is that not a thing? 
That's a joke. It's a bad joke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Certainly, it's, it's like she's she's sort of like this personification of temptation, if you like. And then what's really interesting is when you consider the word temptation, a classic picture that pops into mind is that of the apple, mm-hmm. right? The apple in the, the Garden of Eden. And now we're skipping ahead to Eve, the second wife of Adam. And what's really fascinating there is now we have this subservient wife created from Adam's rib, a part of himself, if you like, and therefore being created from him, being necessarily subservient to him. That's really fascinating. And yet the conflict emerges, the same conflict between between Lilith and Adam sort of emerges in a different way in Eve, in that it's Eve who is tempted, this perfect subservient woman is tempted and takes the apple from the serpent. She takes the first bite and in opposite to um, Adam, who does himself partake from the, the apple. So she tempts Adam, which is quite interesting because then we have, first of all, this temptation of Adam by Lilith, which sort of fails, if you like. And then secondly, we have this perfect woman who is tempted by the deceiver or tempted by Satan and who then subsequently tempts Adam and succeeds. So Yeah, I, it's I, interesting. I it's Adam full of, of Adam. Yeah. Right? He he passed his first test but failed his second, I suppose. But did he I mean the thing about Adam is that Eve is part of him, so it's almost like Adam tempted Adam or Adam's clone yes. tem- tempted uh Adam, so is he really still in the clear, um, or is is there enough of a separation, especially with this free will thing, that even his clone or part of him would, uh, you just add the, the feminine to it, and then the, you, know, you get a little bit of deviousness in, in them. Right. Yes, it, it's quite interesting, isn't it? And, and especially when you, you look at it through sort of a, a gender studies lens, it's really fascinating. But um, I think I, you often hear reference to the fall of Adam, you don't hear reference to the fall of Eve, but it was Eve who took the apple. Right. So that's really interesting. And I do think it fits into the narrative that Eve is a part of Adam. Therefore, it was Adam who felt himself. He, he tempted himself. He, it, was, it was his own sort of failure, in a sense, in that she represented the feminine part of himself perhaps. And here we're getting the kind of dichotomy of men equaling light, women equaling darkness, and we do find this kind of idea in religious literature, um, especially in Christian literature. And that's not necessarily a negative thing, because darkness is not necessarily negative. Darkness is just simply the the mirror image of light. And we even find, you know, in Genesis, these repeated references to light and dark in the beginning there was darkness god said let there be light this kind of reference and it's not necessarily a a negative thing especially from the theosophical perspective in fact in the theosophical perspective the absolute that which is beyond god um, is referred to as the ever darkness so darkness doesn't necessarily take on a negative approach. And also in theosophical literature, we find the idea of woman as being darkness 
as being the womb of the world. But there's nothing bad about that. Darkness does not equate evil. So that's another idea. If you were to take away the literal interpretation of Genesis, perhaps that this is the idea of the creation of the world, the world coming into being through the play of light and dark. The the naivety of, of light, but also the necessary temptation or instead of temptation, perhaps the ambition, the will to live, if we are to use Schopenhauer's uh, phrase, the will to live or the will to power, to use Nietzsche's uh, phrase, of woman, of darkness hmm. coming into play. Duality. The, I mean, it's basically the Laoitzing, you know, the, the yin and the yang and all that is yeah. good, there is evil, evil and all that's evil, there is good. That, that, that kind of, or the, yeah, um, balance is probably the simplest way to put yeah. it. If we um, think of the Garden of Eden, it's sort of like this closed-off system in which there is no real existence. Mm-hmm. It's like a dream, isn't right. it? Yeah. So, in fact, in theosophical understanding, there's the idea that the world existed, the entire universe up to this point, up to all its detail and complexity, first existed in the mind of the Logos before manifesting into existence. So if we were to consider the Garden of Eden as the universe in the mind of the Logos, the dream of the Logos, if you like, it needed to come about through the play of light and darkness, through the dichotomy of male and female. And this could only happen through the innocence of light coming into contact with the the will to power of, of, of women represented through the apple. What is Logos? Uh, Logos. Well, Logos in the in the Bible is traditionally considered the word, but it's also sort of the the word of God, the the, the thought of God, the mind of God, the mind of God. Like. Okay, yeah, that, the mind of God. That, that's yeah. what I that's what I assume from the context, but I just wanted to make sure and also clarify it for both myself and the audience. All right, so back to Logos. Is there any generally accepted idea as to where she? went like where where did she end up living or does she just travel from place to place are there any uh you know was there any continuing stories the epic of lilith something or lilith uh, i'm gonna try and speak like you um you know do, do we have any do we have any tales whether they're competing or sort of uh accepted like what where does the lilith myth go from her escaping from what it turns out to be the three stooges though one of them i guess was the suave stooge who uh, wasn't so astute. He was sort of a, a Casanova angel, uh, Samael, and and you know whether one wants to subscribe to that or not. So she got away from from these angels, or talked them out of it, or seduced one. And he said, "You guys go home. I'll take care of this." But do we know that where she went or or what happened from there? Right. Certainly. Well, I I think what we find then is after the original myth, we sort of find repetitions of the idea. Either that she would go on and have you know demonic offspring with other you know with other figures, um, or that she would go on and be sort of like a, a trickster, sort of a Loki in Norse mythology type figure um, in the, the subsequent events involving Cain and Abel and uh, you know, Tubal Cain and all this stuff. She would kind of go on to be the sort of dark figure in the background, manipulator type figure. Um, in some of the folk tales, um, we also find in some in some other folk tales, um, 
especially sort of in, in some of the folk tales, um, so, such as the alphabet of Ben Sirah is one that I've heard of, um, that, that she went on to do something similar in other worlds in a sort of multiverse type situation. This is quite an interesting one that rather than her only sort of seeding demonic offspring in this universe that she would then go on to other universes to seed demonic offspring. And this is sort of a folktale tradition that she does this endlessly. So it's kind of, that, that's quite interesting going back to perhaps what I'd call my own interpretation of this kind of play of light and dark. If we were to connect this to the sort of multiverse theory, the idea that you, this universe is merely one of, of infinite universes, that perhaps all of these universes come about through the same fundamental principles, though differing in their specifics. And therefore that the same interplay of light and dark of, uh, perhaps the innocence and the will to power need to come about in all universes. This might have been somewhere at the root of these folk tales of sort of Lilith going off and seeding demonic offspring in other realms. When is this the story? I think, what did you say, Ben Siri? When when is this dated back to? When was this folk tale sort of originated? Yeah, so this is the the alphabet of Ben Siri was the the name of this work um as to the specific dating i'll have to i, I don't quite remember i do know that it was an, a very early work I, I think it was somewhere around the sixth century a.d so it was quite early in terms of a extra canonical you know folkloric work which obviously came about after the, the, the mainstream canon of the Bible had. It's amazing. So, I mean, this is basically talking about quantum and, and multi-dimensions back mm -hmm. in the, you know, basically 1400 years ago. Um, yes. You know, that, that seems like it'd be a very modern concept. Of that. I mean, that in and of itself is amazing to me. Um, you had mentioned earlier, uh, really uh, at the beginning, that there were some occult relationships or interpretations of... Lilith, see, I'm doing it again. I'm trying to speak like you. Um, what what are some of those? Yes, that's a great question. Well, actually, she is written. She is mentioned briefly by Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, um, the founder of the Theosophical Society. She's mentioned in the Secret Doctrine, you know, one of the sort of core occult works of the nineteenth um, century. And in that, Madame Blavatsky has a bit of a different interpretation of. Lilith, which also fits into the biblical narrative, but takes it to a, a sort of different, um, in a different direction. So, first of all, to give some context, in theosophy, there's the idea of sort of the grand scheme of evolution, that life is evolution, the purpose of life is evolution. Um, now, the, the, all, putting this into reference, you know, this was only shortly after Darwin's theory of evolution. Evolution was a big sort of controversial idea at the time. Um, obviously, Darwin's idea of evolution sort of focused merely on the, the physical, the idea, you know, uh, uh, the physical um, existence of life, how this came about, why, you know, there is the diversity we see today. Madame Blavatsky took it one giant step further where she said that evolution applies not only to the physical, but to every level of existence, including the mental, 
the spiritual, the mineral, you know, they sort of, on every level, cause even cosmic universes evolve in her um, understanding. So th that's the theosophical idea that everything is in a constant state of evolution on every single level. Now, this applies to Lilith because in the theosophical perspective, there are something called the root races. Now, the word race is obviously now a bit controversial. It wasn't so much back when she was writing this. So obviously this has, it goes without saying, this has nothing to do with, you know, all the later sort of Nazi interpretations of race and these pseudoscientific interpretations of race. Um, Madame Blavatsky's idea of race was more sort of time periods, mm -hmm. time periods in which certain civilizations rose and, um, reached their sort of highest extent and then fell. Yeah. So I think a great, a famous example of that was the Atlantis, right? Oh, the rise yeah. and fall of Atlantis. That, that would be, that's considered a root race in theosophy. And there's these great root races, which exist throughout um, time. Now in the third root race, which was the Lemurian root race that preceded Atlantis, some, something very significant happened in the theosophical or occult perspective. That is that the separation of the genders occurred. Before that, there was just one gender. And um, in fact, the offspring occurred through budding, you know, much like a, <laughs> like a plant mm -hmm. or, or, through, or through the laying of eggs. You get both of these sort of perspectives. Invasion of the body snatchers. Right. And then, yeah, and then that during the Lemurian um, period, which, you know, lasts for millions of years during the Lemurian period, you get the separation of the sexes. And so now you have the first males and the first females. And during this time, um, according to Madame Blavatsky, Lilith is simply a, a collective term, if you like, for some female subhuman beasts, much like the demonic offspring of Lilith who mated with the males of the third root race, thus resulting in giants. To lead it back to, we were talking before about the Nephilim uh, conference okay. and so on. Wait, so, so, so we have in, root races, we have Atlantis, we have Lemuria, what's the third? So sorry, we have... Atlantis, Lemuria, what was the third? Uh, so this was happening during the, the Lemurian third Root race. Okay, but what's the third? Is uh, what's the third? Oh, oh, so okay, so um, be, you, you so prior to the Lemurian, Lemurian was the third. Prior to that, there was the Hyperborean. Oh, okay. So these are different: the Hyperborean, Atlantis, and Lemuria. Lemur I knew Atlantis and, and Lemuria were different. I wasn't sure about Hyperborean. So yeah, so they were the second. The Hyperboreans were the second. The first root race was, is unnamed in theosophy. It's the unnamed root race. So the, uh, yeah, it, it goes through these, these seven root races. So the first was the, uh, the unnamed. The second was the Hyperborean. The third was the Lemurian. The fourth was the Atlantean. And the fifth was the Aryan. Again, this is before Hitler. So <laughs> the names right. are a bit, you know, controversial. Right. This is the nobleman, the, the, the root for, Iranian for yeah. uh, an Armenian. Okay. Yeah. The, the name used to be much less controversial than it is now. Yeah, yeah. certainly. So yes, um, and, and these, and that's where we're in now. We're in this, uh, oh, so, race. so there's so, two to come. Um, so yeah, two to come. 
what what is Tartarian? If we can do that in like two minutes or less. All right. Well, yes, that's sort of um, non non theosophical um, in the sense that you know it. Uh, I, I've heard a bit about it, but it's it, it's not something I'd say I'm, I'm very well versed in. It's something I've heard about, but I think that's sort of a whole different theory or a whole different system. I, I am not sure I know very little. One person described it to me as basically Asian Atlantis. I don't know. Yes, it's sort of like a it's a related theory, but sort of a whole separate understanding of of how it all fits together. And, and by yeah, Asian, I've only very vaguely heard of it before. Yeah. And, I couldn't really comment on it. And, and by Asian, the, just to clarify for folks, because Lemuria is also sort of crosses paths with parts of Asia, uh, more like Central Asia, more like the Stans, Mongolia, uh, uh, well, where the Tartars are in Siberia. Like that, I think that's Tartarian. Um, all right, so that's not a root nation. I, it's fine, when you were first talking about the root nations before you started naming them, the first thing that came to my mind was before, was Babel, you know, the Tower of Babel, but I guess that's not, that's not it at all, but that's just part of number five where we are now. Right, certainly, yes. And so, yeah, basically, the, in the occult tradition, we could say Lila fits into all of this because of, uh, well, it's specifically, Madame Blavatsky says that this resulted not only in the giants and the satyrs and the other sort of creatures, but also in the apes, the apes uh, resulting in the theosophical interpretation as the offspring of Lilith with Lilith being here like the collective term for these female feminine beasts, feminine she-demon creatures, and the early men of the Lemurian um, time period. So she so just took the, the sort of, I'm sorry, so she just took the name Lilith and used it sort of as a generic uh, umbrella term. It's not necessarily accepting Lilith that was uh, formed on Day, I, I, which day was it the God made humans? Was it day five? Uh, yes, I think it was, it was day okay. five. Yes, so it's, so, yeah, so it's not that Lilith. It's 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 no. She's just borrowing the name. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like that. It, it, rather than borrowing the name, she was sort of saying, "Oh, this is the esoteric interpretation of the story. This is what Lilith really means, um, esoterically interpreted." Yeah. And would that be consistent with the old Earth Christianity or no? Old Earth Christianity, it would, whatever the cast of characters are, we don't know them, but that would be entirely different cast of characters. Or could, uh, uh, pre Adamai, could, well, could Lilith, Lilith have existed then? But then it wouldn't make sense with the other interpretation, though. I mean, different dogmas don't need to make sense with each other. I mean, that's sort of the point of being different, I, I suppose. I think like the main ideas are the same actually in the sort of yeah because what what Madame Blavatsky wrote was the idea that Lilith as this collective term had this demonic offspring more or less with with the men of the day well that, that sort of fits into the general narrative of older Christianity doesn't it as well and even with the pre-Adamites um well, theories it sort of it does seem to fit into that general mythology it could also fit into my rather simplistic take way back when when i said that maybe lilith was created first and 
And if, if you go by pre-atomite first, you know, could have been um, three million years prior, uh, you know, so and then and so it could all be reconciled should one want to. Um, so anyway, all right. Uh, enough about my musings. Let's go back to somebody who actually has studied and knows this stuff, and that would be you. So, all right. So we, so we got. We're in the fifth. Is this consistent with like sort of like the 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 ages, the the dynastic uh, reigns of kings from Egypt and Sumeria, and and sort of the the Mayan and some of the First Nations different ages of man thing. Like I, I've heard before that lots of cultures think we're in the fifth the fifth age of man. That this is sort of like there's. You know, there's been interceding sort of, you know, floods or apocalyptic events and, and man has sort of started over each time. Is is, is it all sort of tied together or is it just, I, I don't know, you know, is it, yeah. and why is a seven, like, what's so special about seven? I know there's the Pleiades. I know, I know Sitchin's view of it with the, the earth is the seventh planet as you look into our solar system rather than out of our solar system. Now, what, what, like seven is like so everywhere. So is is this seven ages of man? Is it tied to anything else that we know of, or is it just uh, just one of those coincidences? Right. Yeah. Well, those are all some really good questions. So yeah, I'd say the theosophical worldview is very much based around the idea of a septenary universe. Septenary just being a fancy word for you know, sevenfold, sevenfold universe. The idea that everything runs in sevens. This applies to, uh, most fundamentally, to the seven aspects of man, that hum- the human being is not simply the trinity of mind, body, spirit, but in fact has a sevenfold ex- existence. Um, so rather than, some people might simply say, we're, we're just body and mind, right? So a twofold mm-hmm. existence. But uh, in the philosophical perspective, we actually have seven seven bodies, seven aspects. Um, this also applies to time periods. All of time is segmented into seven aspects, right? So the root races are also subdivided into uh, seven aspects. And within each root race is also seven sub-races within each root race and that's where we get these individual civilizations that rise and fall the seven great civilizations within each each broader root race and they they also have you know branch races they're called and so on so it gets into smaller categories as well all in sevens so the idea that everything can be so segmented into uh, a septenary system and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller but all in sevens Okay. Well, the sevens. Um, yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. I was just, I was just reminding myself that this tied into Lilith because Lilith is, uh, is you know the, this umbrella term for through all of the ages of, of man and and perhaps the um, the Bible adjacent stories took the the term of Lilith and incorporated it into their stories, uh, but that Lilith Lilith was already here. Right, and we, we also find seven, you know, in the Bible, obviously, a lot that the idea of the creation of the world and seven days, therefore, we have the seven day, the seven day week and so on. Uh, seven sort of being a symbol of completeness or wholeness in, in the biblical um, 
numerology, if you like, the idea of seven representing perfection or even God itself, right? So we, we do find seven as being a significant number in is Christianity the, as well as theosophy. Is the root of this uh, just the phases of the moon? I, I'm sorry, I, I sort of missed you there. That's all right. Is, is the root of this sort of the phases of the moon, or, or is... Uh, quite quite possibly. Um, that's that's a good point. So yeah, we actually find a lot of a lot of things we find in the Bible. I think are based on nature as well, and just a lot of what's in the Bible. I'd say a lot of the Christian tradition is based on nature. Well, I, I'd probably say a lot of religion is based on nature. You know, I think that's sort of what religion comes from from observations of nature. So yeah, certainly there might be there might be something to that. Um, that I, I, I think all of all all religious traditions are an attempt to understand what is first presented to us in the natural world, right? And then words are put to it, stories are created around it. So yeah, the the, the significance of the number seven must, in some ways, arrive from nature itself, certainly. And do you think that the the Pleiades or Pleiades, which by the way, dummy over here, I thought it was Orion's belt and, and not just the belt, but the you know the four arms, but apparently not. It's its own little thing where it's the, the seven sisters. Uh, do you think that just because they were seven stars basically aligned and it corresponded to the week that that became a special system or that that was a special system even before there was, I mean, I know it's impossible to, to, to know this for sure, but is there anything you separately special about the Pleiades that it plays such an important role in really almost every culture's stories and myths. Right. So yeah, I, I think that could go either way. It could have been that the number seven was already significant and that the fact that there are the seven sisters sort of helps with that, you know, to make it more special. Or it could have been the opposite way around that there's something special about these seven sisters which then led into the number seven becoming significant i think it was probably a bit of both probably a, you know somewhat of a mixture of, of the two um yes but you know obviously looking at the stars i think throughout human history we we've, we've always looked at the stars with a you know a sense of wonderment and a, a religion is a result of that curiosity of that fascination with the cosmos and an attempt to encapsulate that fascination in some kind of understandable gospel, some kind of understandable narrative, um, which we find across all religious traditions. So yes, I, I think it plays into that and I think it's a complex mixture of both. Yeah, I really need to get one of those apps that I used to have on my iPad and, and you know, on a clear night, go out and take, try to find the seven sisters and see if they're so distinctive as seven stars in a row. Cause I mean, there's, you know, I look up there. I mean, obviously you, some things stand out. The, you know, Orion's belt stands out. The big dipper and the little dipper stand out cause they, but some of these other constellations, I, I don't know how someone came up with that, but I'll have to take a look and yeah, maybe it does stand out. Maybe it, maybe they just follow the trajectory of Orion's, uh, Arrow, which is what someone suggested to me. If you just look at the trajectory, then you find the seven sisters, why they're sort of together. I don't know, but I'll have to take a look to, to, to see if it's so obvious. Cause that, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's not so obvious, then, you know, it might be that the, 
Pleiades are the chicken, not the egg, and not the other way around, um, which is an interesting thing. All right. So what do you, what is your view or your favorite version of the Lilith story? If this was going to be the canon according to Luke Michael Ironside, and you were going to write, you know, the book of Lilith, but, you know, the novella or the one-page essay of Lilith, what would yours be? Right. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I always tend to lean on the symbolic side of things. I, I like to I like to think that mythology story I, I like to think that we as humans use story and have always used story, have always used narrative as an attempt to comprehend the mysteries of our universe. So I guess I'm an anti literalist, if you like. Okay. Um, although I'm always I'm always willing to consider literal interpretations of things. I think at times there, you know, at times, of course, things are literal stories can be literal and there's nothing wrong with that, but I tend to lean towards the symbolic interpretation of things like mythology. And I would include broadly the Christian Bible. I, I, I would say I, I would, I would include elements of the Christian Bible in the realm of mythology. The Bible is fascinating because some of it is mythology. Some of it is legend, which is the mixture of history and mythology. And some of it is history. Some of it, you know, really actually just happened as it was, uh, as it was written. And so the Bible is complex in that way. It's sure a is. bit of everything. And so if I, if I was to go back to this story of Lilith, I, I would put that into the realm of mythology. Therefore, it's a narrative. It's a story which helps us to understand the cosmos better. So my narrative of Lilith would go something along the lines of the interplay of light and darkness, the, the relationship between order and chaos, or the relationship between innocence and power. And I would see this as the necessary elements, um, which are often represented by the genders, by male and female, um, coming into play to create the universe. And again, this idea of the, the Garden of Eden as a dream, as a, the imagination of the Logos, an idea in the mind of the Logos prior to the actual existence of the universe where, where humans are possessed with the knowledge of, of good and evil, of right and wrong, of, of light and dark. I, I think it, it fits into that whole narrative. This is the, the idea that um, perhaps the simplest interpretation might be the creation of Adam, Adam being the light, um, married to the darkness, right? Married to Lilith, the darkness leaves, the darkness, the darkness rejects the light. And so there's this complex um, sort of, it's sort of like when you get magnets, right? And you put the opposite ends of magnets together, they connect, but you put the, the same, you know, they sort of repel each other. For whatever reason, there was this sort of repulsion between the two. And it took Eve for this sort of creation to take place, if you like. And so the two creations is just the, a complex narrative, I think, of the interplay of light and darkness, of the, the birth of the world. So no Cain came from Lilith, and then no uh, Samael and Lilith created all the monsters with their wild well, offspring. No, I, I, I sort of think that it, it doesn't matter in the end. I think you can. I, I think the general idea remains the same. So I think you can you can go with that narrative, or you can go with the other narrative, but the symbolism remains. 
So for, for me, it's more the meaning. Right. The meaning behind the symbolism that matters, not the specifics. So I think whether you take the interpretation that it was Lilith and Samael and they they gave birth to the darkness of the world, if that's what the, the demon spawn sort of represents, if that's the evil of the world, the darkness of the world, or whether it was Adam and Lilith, I, I think the general meaning remains the same and that the specifics is not super important. Um, I think this is the idea of the dichotomy of light and dark coming into play and evil entering the world, the beginning of evil. So whichever story you like, the the parable, the lesson is the same. I, I think that's one of the beauties of biblical exegetists that you sort of you take these different interpretations and the interpretations might really differ in the specifics but perhaps the general idea remains the same and yeah I, I definitely think in this case the general idea remains whether whether you remove you could also just remove Lila as mainstream Christianity has done they've removed Lila mm-hmm. from the narrative but then the meaning's the same but she keeps but she refuses to go away. She, she's yeah. she's not forgotten. She, she she comes back through even the apple, doesn't right. she? Yeah. Yes. Or she comes back through Lucifer. You know, it's like you remove Samuel and then he comes back through Lucifer. You you sort of you get this personification of darkness. No matter how many times you try to remove the characters who personify it, um, which is interesting. Yes, it really is. I mean, one of the most interesting things to me, which is you know related to our general discussions, how Satan, who actually is identified in the Bible and is identified in a very different role than as, you know, the devil of the underground of evil, more as, you know, basically God's prosecutor is, is, you know, testing and uh, poking of Job with God's permission. Um, And and Satan then then has come to replace, he's been the stand-in for Lucifer or Samael or whoever was the you know, the, the, the leader of, you know, became the premier. I mean, there's nothing in, in the Old Testament that makes you think that that figure would be named Satan. But yet that's, I mean, almost universally accepted. I mean, you say Satan anywhere, you, you, yeah. you know what it means. Now, I know that there were demons and, and you know, other words in, in sort of nearby cultures and, and mythologies There was, the, the demon Shaitan in, 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 I think, Babylonian. There was, I think, Satanak or Satanak, something like that. It, it was, you know, sort of known as a demon sort of nearby. So it may just be that the word was borrowed and, you know, the souls in the Old Testament said, you know, close enough. This is, this is. And set, set in Egyptian mythology as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so sometimes we do find this sort of amalgamation of similar sounding figures. Um, it could be coincidence. It could be, it could, it could be something a bit more to it in that, you know, a lot of the time it's actually these folklore, the stories passing between traders, passing between cultures that can be part of it as well. Um, a lot of the time it's actually just coincidence, you know, set sounds like Satan, they must be the same figure. And then you actually get a simple, an oversimplification of both traditions. And what you actually get is a new character, a new character emerging from two other characters. But all of the characters do actually kind of represent something vaguely similar, like darkness or evil or, or whatever it might be. 
Well, it seems to me that God wanted the balance there because, first of all, the all-powerful God could have taken care of Lilith on his own and or given that heroic quest to Adam or his offspring to go hunt her down and, and bring her to justice or, or smite her and didn't do either of those things. So uh, uh, maybe it was all part of the plan after all. Luke, I think that you're still going to be joining the, the group on the Nephilim, Nephilim Anthropology Conference, yes. is that correct? Uh, That's correct. That is great. Um, before I forget, I want to let people know if you want to purchase a ticket to that uh, to conference. I believe there's both in-person and virtual tickets available. So uh, obviously it's in the UK. I think there are still some in-person tickets available as we record this May 24th by the time this drops. Maybe not. Who knows? But the site is HTTPS colon backslash backslash NAC in caps, NAC O-N, lowercase, so NACON, but the first three letters are capitalized, dot, Eventbrite, the E is capitalized, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E, one word, dot C-O, not com, dot C-O, as in company, dot U-K. So H-T-T-P-S, colon, backslash, backslash, NACON, dot, Eventbrite, dot, co, dot U-K. I suspect if you type anything close into your your server, you'll come up with it anyway. And check that out. You'll hear from Luke, maybe even from me. I'm I'm, I'm I have some function as well there, um, and I hope that you'll all consider that. Luke, I hope that you will consider coming back for shows on uh, hermetism and, and maybe uh, various things. And I know that we previously talked about you coming back on linguistics because yes, this this guy knows. Everything, and he's gonna he's gonna completely explain to us how it makes sense that the Indian language is more closely related to the English language and Hebrew than Hebrew is to Aramaic and most of the African languages, and 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 where Finno-Ugrarian fits in, and what's a Uralic language, and all of this other stuff that I only know enough to be dangerous about, and and some of it don't even know enough to be dangerous about, just can. I can barely say the word. So um, Luke is uh, one of my, uh, becoming one of my favorite guests uh, here on the show. And, and we're happy to have him as our our little treasure secret and a, a recurring member of our Garden of Doom extended family. So thank you so much for joining us and illuminating us on the darkness that might be Lilith or the light that might be Lilith, depending on your perspective. Was she the ultimate feminist or was she just a woman who wanted to uh, not be subservient and make her own way through this world and, and was allowed to, and has gotten a bad rap, um, you know, uh, and, you know, should she rightfully be the namesake of the Lilith fair for the, uh, the musicians audience, you be the judge, you decide, hopefully you'll, you know, try to read some of the stories yourself and, Find some of the non-canonical uh, stories or, or at least find some videos on YouTube to check out and have fun doing it because this stuff is fun um, or it is to me. And if you listen to the show, you know, weekly or regularly, you're here because you think it's fun and interesting too. So check that stuff out um, and you'll come up with your own interpretations. Luke, I cannot thank you enough. Please tell folks how they can support you, where they can find you. If there's anything that you have to promote, I know that mostly you are a teacher and a student and a and a scholar and a cleric, um, but I'm not sure if you have anything to promote or if you want folks to follow you or not. But uh, this is your this is your chance, at least for this episode. 
Hey, well, I'm, I'm mostly active on Facebook. Facebook tends to be, you know, I, I'm not a big user of social media, um, but you, aside from Facebook, I do regularly update my Facebook. I don't really use much else. So you can look me up on Facebook. You can search for Luke Michael Ironside. Um, it'll be, it'll come up, you know, in your search results. I, I accept friend requests or follow requests from, from pretty much anyone. So I, I generally post my public work on there. I post my articles, I post my lectures, I post updates on my various, you know, engagements with the Theosophical Society and the, the old Catholic Apostolic Church. Um, you can also look me up through the old Catholic Education Society. If you were to put that into Google, you'll come up with my organization and you'll be able to keep updated on any events we're doing. We're going to be looking at some stuff to do with some of the things very similar to what we've been talking about today, the history of Christianity. We're going to be inviting people from various different denominations to talk about some of these topics, and we're not afraid of controversy. So, you know, we're going to be looking at some of these things in a sort of critical light. Um, so, yeah, Old Catholic Education Society, or if you're more interested in the theosophical, esoteric element, you can look up the Virtual Center for Theosophical Studies, of which I am the director. Um, and we have regular events with people from all around the world, from all different backgrounds, talking about all kinds of different esoteric topics. Amazing. Yep. Uh, there are some people who have 96 hours in every day, and I, I have a feeling that you're one of them. Um, it's, it's just amazing. And you guys don't even know it, but he's, he's like 27. Um, but I have a suspicion that maybe he's the offspring of Adam and Lilith and, and, and is actually, you know, anywhere between 6,000 and 6 billion years old. And that's how he knows all this stuff. But, uh, my, my little, uh, imaginings aside, uh, Luke, thank you again for joining us. It's always a pleasure. You're a fount of information. Um, I could probably talk to you all day, but that would be horribly unfair to the rest of the world who, who deserves their time. So folks, thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed him. Take him up on his offer. Check out uh, the old Catholic, what is it called? The Esoteric Society? Uh, so we've got the Old Catholic Education Society, Education Society and the Virtual Center for Theosophical Studies. Now that I can see because it's right there on my screen, Virtual Center for Theosophical Studies. So check out his stuff and consider signing up for the virtual tickets for the Nephilim Anthropology Conference. Uh, you'll definitely hear a lot of diverging views there as well. And the names are getting bigger and bigger. There are people, if you follow sort of esotericism and, uh, you know, and I'll just call it alternative anthropology, alternative archaeology, uh, big names, um, Rhea Wheatley, Heather Arnold, uh, uh, Andrew Goff, uh, Hugh Newman, Gary Wayne. So, uh, you know, and, and the cast of characters from last year as well. I mean, who are also names in their own, Andrew Goff, uh, Rocco Staldo. I mean, I, there's so many. I, I shouldn't even say any names because I'm going to leave people out. And that's not intentional. I just realized that I'm just going to go on and on. So, Check all that stuff out and check out all of the Garden of Doom shows. Uh, if you are new to it, please like, subscribe, follow, share with your friends. Um, let people know and write reviews and give us a five-star rating. And again, we will see you next week in the Garden. And, or you will at least hear us next week in the Garden. Thanks again.